All right, so um, I'm going to do an Easter plug in a moment, but before I just was I, a quick quick story. Um, I was really upset about that that time being posted wrong for Easter. I was like, it's Easter. This is the one day you got to get the times and the schedule right. This is the one day. So I came to a staff meeting and I said, look, this, this is messed up. Like, we got to be pro, we got to be professional, can't even get our times right on Easter. It's the one, Jesus came back from the dead and we can't even get our times right. And I said, who's responsible for this? And the staff said, you know, hey, it's not important whose fault it is. And I said, yeah, no, of course it's important whose fault it is. Who was it? Uh, it was kind of your fault, Isaac. You, say, you said, uh, said, hey, let's not dwell on the past. Let's... <laughs> Let's, let's move forward. Easter is about new beginnings, new creation. It's about those things. Uh, Kevin Kersney is going to come up here and teach the concluding part of 1 Thessalonians. But briefly, just a, a plug for Easter. Uh, we have so much stuff going on Easter. Easter is going to be awesome. So invite people, invite friends. The statistics are clear. Easter is like the one day of the year where if you invite someone to church, they still will, will come. It's, it's just a day that people will generally come. It's still culturally celebrated. So take advantage of that. And then secondly, um, we need lots of help. We do so much. On a normal Sunday, we have about a, on an average Sunday, we have like 150 kids in our, in our children's program. So Easter, that grows even more so. So if you are interested in helping, or not even interested, if, if you feel that there's an actual need to teach children about the Lord Jesus Christ, then you need to sign up and help us. Um, there are three services, tons of help needed. So uh, sign up on a Connect card. You could just say, hey, I heard the message. I felt conviction from on high to help the little children know Jesus. Uh, and we, we'll, we'll have someone reach out to you and plug, plug you in because it's going to be a, a big deal. Also, if you're like, you know, you just don't work with kids because, you know, some of them still... Go poop, and that's a big problem. Um, we need help with ushers, greeters, hospitality, etc. So you can also put on your Connect card. Uh, I'm willing to help with that, and Greg Quirk will will reach out to you. But essentially, it's a massive Sunday. Last Sunday, we uh, last Easter, we had just over 2,000 people at our various campuses and six services. So it's massive. Yeah, it's a great thing. But we need tons of help. Easter's like the quinceanera of Christianity. So we need. Uh, mucho, mucho ayuda. Uh, domingo, next domingo. Uh, I, know, I know just enough Spanish to... Uh, uh, quick story. Uh, oh, man. I'm sorry, Kevin. Uh, quick story. Uh, someone, uh, I was so proud because I use enough of my fakes. I know just this much Spanish, poquito, poquito, uh, enough that I can fake it. And someone thought they went to Centro this week because they thought they, they were... I was talking about the chanclas and abuelitas, and they thought that I probably talked the, taught the Spanish service as well. I'm like, no, all of my Spanish is fake. Juan's the real, the real guy. So uh, that, that was cool. But I will attempt to do a sermon in Spanish one of these days. Kevin, Gloria a Dios. Who said that? Was that you? It sounds so much better in Spanish. You guys should practice that. When Kevin makes a good point, say, Gloria a Dios. Feels good. It feels good. It feels real good. Kevin Kersenabe, going to bring the ending of 1 Thessalonians. You guys are writing on your Connect cards. You put this in my hand, and I feel like I have to be a stupid stand-up comedian. Just to get off the stage. 1 Thessalonians, get into the Bible.
<laughs> I feel like I need to dance or something after that. <laughs> um, anyway, okay, so here we go. Awesome that you guys are here. I actually want to start out with something. How many of you came to Road to Resurrection yesterday? Raise your hand. Raise your hand. Okay, how many of you worked Road to Resurrection yesterday? It, okay, I got to tell you, it was awesome. Yeah, so hey, right, right, clap your hands. Janine, Stan, Lisa, the whole crew, the student ministry crew, brought together a team and they administrated something that like, just, you know, one small thing could be catastrophic, right? One styrofoam wall being snapped in half or, you know, and, and they brought, put it all, brought it all in, got it all set up all week and they, I think they were done by 11 p.m. last night. They'd taken the U-Haul, dropped stuff off in Hollister. It was amazing. Um, I do believe people really sensed um, what, what, what Easter's about. Uh, and I, I challenge you that this is a perfect example of how when the family of God comes together uh, in this way of just kind of worshiping Jesus through just doing stuff. Some people were setting up sets. Some people were setting up costumes. Some people were spraying Jesus's hair with water and painting blood on him. I mean, it was, it was very powerful. But all of those things coming together and being able to spend that time with our family was a really cool thing. I highly encourage it. Easter will be one of those opportunities to do that, to work with our children. So thank you for that awesome opportunity. On we go. Many of you have one of these. You all should have one of these, unless we ran out. Okay, this, um, this represents Palm Sunday. It is Palm Sunday today. Um, and the purpose of Palm Sunday is the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem on a donkey. People saying, Hosanna, they're laying down the palm branches, they're waving them, and it was this sign of a king entering his town. And there'd be a procession of people following him in. But the, but the very unusual thing about this is within just a few days, many of the people who were hailing the king were calling for him to be crucified. And I think that's really important for us to remember that as this procession of people comes into the city, we, we need to make sure our understanding is correctly because you have to think about what Jesus did. Jesus came into the city not with a sword, but he came and got on a cross, exalted and enthroned on a cross. So when we are participating in this procession, it's a whole different thing. That's why he says, take up your cross and follow me. This king does things differently. So I want you this week, maybe you need to put this on your dashboard if you commune a lot. Maybe you need to put this on your bathroom mirror. Maybe some of you, I mean, I'm a man, this won't fit in a wallet. You can't really do this all day, but maybe you, you have a way of carrying this with you so it reminds you of the type of king that you follow and the procession that you are a part of when you call Jesus king. Maybe some of you are digitally inclined. Take a snapshot of it. Make it your, your, uh, your uh, wallpaper on your phone so you can see it, that it would remind you throughout this week something incredible is coming and has already come. Okay? All right. Enough about that. We are in the series of To Wait for His Son, which is 1 Thessalonians. Um, and today I'm hoping, you know, you look at that title, To Wait, well, where did you guys get that title from? And it's Pastor Sam's fault. He came up with it. Um, it's a stupid name. No, I'm just joking. It's actually, it's a very powerful name. He actually, and I didn't even realize it. When he said it, 
Um, it took me till this very last session, as I'm preparing for today, I realized the nuance of just this little partial phrase and how it truly encapsulates the whole book of 1 Thessalonians. And I want you to think about something. How many of you love waiting? Go raise your hand. Dare you. Dare you. What's your, oh, bro. So what do you like? like what's your favorite waiting spot? Anybody? Where do you wait? Airport? Anywhere else? Man, DMV, that came up two times in a row. Last, it took me by so much surprise that my ear thing flew off because we were talking about the DMV. DMVs are very good one. Anywhere else we wait? Wait in lines for stuff, bank, what? Okay, doctor's office. You see the, Disneyland. Okay, now, what I want to ask you, it's true, it's, but I tell you, those lines are a lot better than uh, Magic Mountain, I'll tell you that. All right. So waiting is a part of our life, but I want you to think about that kind of waiting is a little bit different. When we think about waiting, I'll give you an example. Um, I used to be in the business world. I became a pastor not, not that long ago, um, and I remember times coming home from, from a business trip. Maybe I'd be gone internationally or maybe it'd just be domestic, but I remember when I'd open the door, I'd hear this screech daddy's home and I'd have these kids just run and just like hit me and it, it would just be like an amazing feeling it was this this I have they've been waiting for my return I have been waiting to be back with them and there's this anticipation and joy of my children and my spouse coming around me for about five seconds and I wanted them wait no I'm just joking it was having them just being surrounded by my family that pleasure and joy of that moment do you know these moments do you know these most? I want to think about waiting. Like, here's, here's another, another example. Um, when you get engaged to be married, there is this time where you are waiting. Now, and I will say some of you are like, well, I've got to think about all the things we need to buy and all the things we need. But no, I'm talking about the waiting where you're like anticipating the wonder of this very event and how powerful it is in your life and how uh, transforming it will be, how lovely your spouse, well, I'm going to say how lovely your bride is, some of your, maybe some of your husbands are lovely, I don't know. <laughs> or maybe, um, maybe for some of you, it's when you get pregnant for the first time. And odds are, in nine months, you're gonna have a new little image bearer, a little human baby that you're responsible for. And there's this, there's this thing inside you and it's like it's this wonder and there's a little bit of confusion and uncertainty, but at the end of the day, you know that there is something you are anticipating with pleasure and joy that this event is coming. Okay? I want you to think about that waiting. And, and, and I've been, um, I'm fighting recently with something that I'm waiting for that I'm a little, little, uncomfortable about, and it's my, my daughter is about to go to college. She'll be going to college this next year, and uh, I have a little bit of trepidation, so I've been going through things in my mind. I'm highly analytical, so I've been thinking like, okay, so imagine having a phone call with her when she's at college. What will we talk about? Maybe, maybe it'll be a challenge or, or something hurtful that's happened to her, and she'll need to cry with me on the phone. Maybe it'll be an unforeseen joy that she's experienced in learning something new or meeting someone or whatever it is. But I can tell you one thing for sure. What I will want to talk to her about is, hey, when are we going to get together again? When am I going to see you? 
there is a desire, a worth waiting for of my daughter's presence, my son's presence, and my wife's presence. So when you're away from them, there are these moments that you experience where you're like, okay, I am expectant for our next time together. Okay, so I want you to be thinking about that. When we think about to wait for his son, there is this thing where, where as I might talk to my daughter, I might actually, uh, as she's in the college world, I might be saying, hey, I'm encouraging you to live in the way that we have taught you over here. This is, this is what we are like in our family. I might actually warn and advise her and say, hey, there's some stuff over here you need to be careful of. That boy who wants you to go to his dorm room? Uh-uh. No, take five guys with you, I'm good. All right? There, there are, are boundaries that I will have to either reaffirm or draw anew because it's new experiences that she's having. So there's this, this encouragement, this, this advising, and this drawing of boundaries, but there's, there's something more that's in the midst of this. But I, I, I want to just say that this is very much like Paul writing this first letter to the, Thessal- the church of Thessalonica. It's very much like it. It's, it's a very similar thing. Here, I'll show you. I'm going to go through some of these, these chunks and just give you some of the snapshots as we've read through before. So here's some of the words of Paul to the church. He says, Remembering you before our God and Father, we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. We were like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Like a father with his children, we exhorted, encouraged, and charged you. Do you see what he's doing? This is highly familial language. They are part of a family with Paul, and Paul is far away from them, and he's saying, this, you remember this. You remember that we are part of the same family. So he might encourage them using words like, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord. How many of you would love to hear those words from someone? You have been imitating the very apostles of Christ and the king himself by the way you're living your life. That's encouragement. You became an example to all the believers in Macedonia. Your faith in God has gone forth everywhere in Macedonia. You became imitators of the churches in Judea through their affliction and persecution, for you are our glory and joy. Are your kids, if you have them, are they not your glory and joy? We have been comforted about you through your faith. But there's also admonition, his desire to make sure that they're paying attention to the lines. The Lord is the avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. This was not the first time in this letter. He's clearly already told them you have to be careful because God, much like the magistrates of a city, they are the avenger. They're the ones who bring justice. Jesus will ultimately bring justice, so pay attention to how you're living. He draws boundaries, and these are, these are actually pretty clear from, from chapter four, um, a majority of chapter four, and actually at the end, which we'll get to later, he's drawing these boundaries. He's saying, hey, don't lust like the Gentiles. You wanna live your lives with holiness and honor. Don't be impure, be full of holiness. Don't disregard God, disregard man. You don't wanna defraud or wrong your brothers in your, in your sexual immorality. You wanna have brotherly love. You wanna love your brothers and do so more and more. And then in the section that Isaac went through last week, when he was talking about those that are not to, don't grieve like other people grieve. He says, you have a hope. 
and they don't. You have a hope, and they do not. So this is what I want you to grab hold. This is what I think Paul is really going into in the section that Isaac went, went through, and the one we're going to kind of go through today is the fact that there's this idea of hope. Paul is wanting to give hope, but I want to make sure we understand hope is hope. I do my scratcher, pay my five bucks or whatever, and I'm hoping to win the lottery. That's, is that the hope we're talking about? That's a whole different thing. We're talking about the anticipation of something coming. Again, your spouse is pregnant, you're awaiting a baby, you're awaiting your marriage. It's something that is going to happen and you see with pleasure. That is most of the time what the New Testament is talking about. It's something that you know is gonna happen. It's just not quite there yet, it's coming. So we have to hold that in mind. Paul is gonna to wanna to encourage the Thessalonian church as much as possible. So here's our section for today. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. It's pretty cool that he says that, but he does keep writing. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night while people are saying, there is peace and security. Then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. I think there's a huge unpacking that needs to happen of this concept of day of the Lord. And we've talked about it before, but we need to remember where this day of the Lord comes from. This day of the Lord is saturated into Judaism. It is something that, that Paul would have known absolutely, that the day of the Lord is something that has flown through the Old Testament scriptures all the way back to Exodus. If you think about the story of Genesis, the very first book of the Bible, it talks about God creating everything good, a wonderful creation. He puts his image bearers in his garden temple and says, you are to do like me. You are to create, you are to love, you are to build up, you are to create culture as I would want it done. You are my vice regents in this place. And then they make the mistake. And everything is broken, and it starts in this downward spiral through the majority of the book of Genesis, with the exception of Abraham being brought in. Through God's grace, he picks Abraham to say, go out of where you're going, and you will become a blessing to the rest of the world. You will become a blessing, a light to the other nations. But by the time you get to the end of Genesis, it all looks good. Joseph is, is like number two in, in Egypt, but you just switch from, from Genesis to Exodus, and all of a sudden, the Israelites, in all of their, their numbers... They've expanded, but they're all slaves. They're slaves. They're needing to be saved. So, I'm not going to go through the whole story here. There's a bunch of plagues that Moses has brought to the forefront with his brother Aaron, and God is challenging Pharaoh in his kingship, Pharaoh and his gods in what they're doing, and he basically brings justice and redemption to the, uh, the people of Israel and brings them out of Egypt. He saves them, and the way they were saved is by painting blood of lamb on their door so that the avenging angel that was coming in to kill all of the firstborn would actually pass over them. That's where you get the idea of Passover. In Judaism, Passover is huge. It's basically saying this reminds us of the day that God saved us. And that's where this day language originates. In the very beginning, um, right after Exodus, right after they go over and cross the Red Sea, there's this song of Moses. But right before the song, it talks about this day, the commemoration of basically this particular day. It's Yom Yahweh, the day of Yahweh that they're talking about. God has saved us. But the problem, here, here's what happens. 
From there on, Israel becomes a nation. They actually get some good kings at some points. David and Solomon jump in, and, and the, actually the kingdom looks pretty good. It looks like everything is good. So they're still, um, they're still celebrating Passover, looking back to Egypt and what God has done for them. But soon they get thrown into exile by the powers around them. They're no longer in their land. Their temple is destroyed. So Passover remains, but it remains for a different purpose. It is pointing back and it is pointing forward. It is pointing to a day in which God would make everything good again. The day in which it, it's basically, it's saying, hey, live under this kingdom. It's an invitation, live in this particular way. And it's also a promise that one day God is going to remove all evil, all brokenness from his good creation. So they look both backwards to what God has done and forward to what God is going to do in the day of the Lord. And the prophets, if you read any of the prophets, you'll see this theme coming up where they're talking about a day. Most of the prophets are written either just before they go into exile, when they're all jacked up. Prophets were basically covenant watchdogs. They're saying, you messed up, Israel. You messed up. Here's how you messed up. You better get it straight. And they basically tell them, look, there is a day coming. And that day is full of hope but it's also full of justice, and you ask, what line am I on in this, this hope and this justice thing? The book of Amos, it's a small book. You could read it pretty quickly. This prophet is a shepherd, and he basically says, look, the day of the Lord is coming. You know what he's coming for? You, Israel. He's coming for you. So you have to realize this day of the Lord was a, it was a judgment, and it was a hope. It was full of both. It just came down to, were you on God's team, or were you not? Did you choose to be a part of his kingdom or the kingdoms of this world, like Babylon and Egypt under Pharaoh? It's critical that we think about this day of the Lord as we're walking through this, because there is this remnant of Passover. There's this idea, because as soon as you get into Jesus' time, even though Israel is no longer in exile per se, they really are. They're under the thumb of Rome. Once they come back from exile, everyone thinks everything's going to be fine. They get back into their land. There's a temple built. But at the end of the day, no, it, it, it's just not the same. They're still under the thumb of somebody. Jesus comes in, Palm Sunday would be an example, and is, is declared that king. And Jesus actually lives a different way and dies a specific way for us. He is the new Passover lamb. His blood is the thing that cleanses us. This day of the Lord, Paul is going to take and fashion this whole argument that actually makes us, we have to remember the, the waiting that we're talking about when you're looking forward to this day of the Lord. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober, self-controlled. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet of the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. If you notice that last section that Isaac was talking about last week, how does it end? It's an encouragement. It's basically, no, 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 take heart. You live in a different kingdom than them. You don't have to grieve in the same way. It says, be, encourage one another with this information. So this section ends the exact same way. 
and there's this border. There's this line. He's saying, again, there's this living and that living. You, you don't want to be on this side of the kingdom's world. You want to be on God's kingdom side. So Caesar's, Caesar's citizens, they are unaware. They declare peace and security. What that means is Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. Uh, Caesar Augustus has won. He has brought peace to the whole empire. So they would go around talking about Pax Romana, the peace of, of Rome under Caesar. And there actually are some prophetic references as well where people... Uh, the prophet would say, hey, don't say that there's peace because there were p- false prophets saying, hey, everything's going to be good. But the, the prophets, God's prophets are saying, no, 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 no. God's judgment is coming. There is a hope of it, but there is judgment coming. People of darkness, they're drunk. There's wrath and destruction. And they are surprised. Whereas in God's family, we're aware. We anticipate peace and security. This is important. Do you think the Thessalonian church had peace and security. Now, hold one second. Think about this. These were a people who were being told that you proclaim a different king than Caesar. And that has implications in social context, in religious context, across the board, because the political system was so tied up into the religious and social system that when you pull out of one, you are in essence pulling yourself, you're becoming an outcast of all of them in many ways. So maybe that guild you are a part of, you can no longer burn incense to a particular god. Or maybe you can't go to the, before the imperial cult and burn incense to Caesar anymore because you were saying he is king, and that would mean Jesus is not. So this people is in a place that believes in one king and you're being told to believe in a different one and to live differently. So I ask you, do they have peace and security where they are? No. No. They're people of light. They're sober. They're self-controlled. They have salvation and they're ready. Ready for what? Do we know the time? No, we don't. It says you don't know the time or the season, but you're ready. You're ready nonetheless. So just like I'm thinking about my daughter and I've raised my kids in a particular way, Paul is actually dealing in, in a similar way. He's saying, I'm encouraging you to be like this. I'm, I'm discouraging you and warning you that there are consequences to living in this particular way. And he's drawing boundaries around them and saying, hey, you have to be careful of boundaries. There actually may be some things that overlap. So, for example, in those two circles, it was actually in Caesar's world, it was illegal. There was a law against adultery. They probably didn't get, you know, policed very much, but there was a law against adultery. So, so Christians and, and people um, in Caesar's world, they believe the same thing in that sense. But at the end of the day, Caesar answer, answers to Caesar. The reason why we believe it is we answer to God. We don't... We disregard man, not disregard God. So what is that? There's, there's something that, that is, is more. There's something more needed. There's something that manifests this very living that we're talking about. And as we continue here, you'll see it. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for the helmet of the hope of salvation. You see the faith lope. How many of you have heard the faith lope? Faith lope. Lope and hove? Faith, hope, and love being combined in other places and with Paul. These are like the three inseparable aspects of our faith, of our living, the way we actually work out how we, we live in this world. You can't take them away from each other. They belong together. And I would actually argue, so the very beginning, verses 2 and 3, the whole book talks about faith, hope, and love again. It says, we remember you before our God in prayer of your uh, 
work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope. So this is not a new theme. He's coming back to the same one. And in fact, in chapter three, right before this, he actually, there's a point at which Timothy has gone and visited them and come back and reported good things. And he was saying, I'm happy to hear about how you're doing with faith and love. Now, I don't know for sure, I'm no biblical scholar, but it's interesting that hope was not included in that reference. And right after it, he starts talking about hope. So you have to think about this, faith and love. You can live faithfully and lovingly without a direction, right? If you don't have that though, Paul understands, just like me wanting to talk to my daughter without knowing the direction, whose presence you actually came from and want to be in, you can actually have no motivation, you will lose it. It's like it gets old and stale and you lose traction on your faith and your love. Or you take something else away. Have you ever seen someone who's really faithful and they're not loving at all? Scripture talks about that as well. You see these three things, are, they're you cannot take away parts of it or the chair falls over. Paul is saying, you guys have a hope, a hope and a salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us so that whether we are awake, alive, or asleep, dead, we might live with him in his very presence. So you see how Paul is bringing around, he's talked about their faithfulness and hey, don't be like this, be like this, watch these boundaries, it's not enough. He needs to encourage them, they are headed in a direction. You are a part of something now and you live that way now. So the hard part is, how many of you uh, have taken sociology or are interested in sociology? Okay, cool. That's more than first service. You guys are smarter. <laughs> so just think about this sociologically. Paul has this uphill battle of coming in and saying, hey, by the way, that whole place that you live in where you're all tied into religiously and socially and with your work, you're vocationally tied in, says, by the way, there's a new king. And by the way, he died decade or so, five to ten years ago, and he's been raised again. And he's ascended to the Father. But I want you to believe in him in the midst of the chaos you're living in. It's okay. Say that Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. Do you see the challenge here? If I get people over into the kingdom, there is, there's stuff that needs to be, I need to continually remind them where they need to be. But the, the issue is simple. It's to, in order to live this life, in order to live a full Christian experience, you require faith, love, and hope. You have to be pointing towards something so that my entire identity, my actions, my motivations are all tied together in this thing for this king. Now, how many of you feel like you're there? there? It's hard hard. But this is what God's kingdom is like, and this is what the scripture is saying. It's saying, hey, you, if you call Jesus king, you belong to the day. Have you ever thought about it? You belong to that day, that wonderful day where all evil will be destroyed. You've been invited into to resist the kingdoms of this world and to accept the promise of what he's going to do to evil ultimately. You belong to that day. So what is what does that look like? And he just goes this rapid fire. So I want you right after the section, he rapid fires to really the end, of the end of the book. And he says this, we ask you brothers, respect those who labor among you, esteem them very highly in love. By the way, that's me, Isaac, Sam, Greg. Yeah, see, I got something in here. Be at peace among yourselves. 
And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil. Always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. You see, he just went through that list again. He's like, this is how it is, and you're living over here. You got the hope? Watch. Watch how this kingdom works. Watch your faithfulness. Watch your love. So what does this really look like? I wanted to tell you a story. I uh, went to, I just got back from Cuba about, about three weeks ago. It was my first time, and there are many stories I could tell. I know you guys got uh, debriefed um, by the Serenias on, on some of the stuff that went on there. But there's one particular story I wanted to share with you because I think it actually sums up this idea of faith, love, and hope. We met a couple. Um, I actually don't remember the husband's name. Um, Dunia did most of the speaking. And they were from a town, if I recall correctly, of, of Cienfuegos originally, which is on the south side of Cuba. And they, they had a great ministry. I think she worked with the elderly and with kids there. Um, they had all of their family was from this town. It was their happy place. It was the place where everything was together, but they felt this call from God to move 75 miles away. Now, I know that some of you may commute 75 miles a day, but you have to remember that they don't have cars like that. You literally get out and hope someone's gonna pick you up. You get in the back of a truck. You get on the back of a horse-drawn buggy. It doesn't really matter. Whatever way you can get part of the distance, you take it. Transportation is one of the biggest issues there for everything, including the gospel. So 75 miles is a world away. So they move from Cienfuegos to the northern coast in this lovely little village called um, Sagua de Isabela. And uh, it's a coastal town. It's really pretty, actually. So they they buy a home there. Um, They're there for just a handful of months, two or three, I believe. And uh, Hurricane Irma comes through and destroys their village. Destroys it. We saw that, I mean, we we sat out there on the point and took big pictures of all the destruction it had done. So the military in Cuba would not let people go into the city until 72 hours after Irma had passed, so everyone is waiting. This is the kind of waiting that is challenging. What's gonna happen? All the neighbors are weeping. There is mourning for what probably has happened, and they release them to go into the town, the whole village, and they walk in there, and it's destruction. But Dunia tells us this story, and she says, I felt God telling me, you don't worry about your house. Don't even go there. You have all of these people that are part of your community, people who know Jesus and people who do not, and they need you. They need your presence. They need you to console them, to remind them that there is something greater, to remind them that this is not the end game, that their house and everything they own was was destroyed. You gotta think, man, usually when a hurricane hurricane comes through, the water line comes up to here, like storm surge, you gotta know. Hurricanes, if you don't know, hurricanes, a lot of the damage isn't necessarily the wind, it's storm surge. You get low pressure on the hurricane and water raises, and then waves are on top of that water, so it just inundates land. So usually water would be around here. He showed us. There's this mark that usually it is. And then he showed us what the mark was for Hurricane Irma. And see, the problem is, is they don't have public storage. It's not like you pay for a storage place to put all your extra stuff in and protect it. What they do is they put stuff up high. They figure then it might have a chance of surviving. Well, not with this one. It destroyed everything, all their electronics, everything destroyed. So we're sitting in their living room, which is a house church. We're like, there's about 
four pews, I think. We spun one around. We're having this conversation. And like, it could probably fit 35, maybe, tight. And we're having this conversation, and I'm listening to her. And she felt like I was supposed to console the rest of this town. She loves children, but she had mournfully told us a story of an ectopic pregnancy that she had had so she could never have kids. Man, you got to know, this woman humbled me. She understood what it was to be faithful, loving, and hopeful. She lived a life full with very little. You got to know that most people, I think most of the people I talk to, you have more money in your pocket right now than they make a month. 20 bucks. That's most of the time when I talk to people, that was what they were. The orthopedic surgeon, he made 80. It's pretty good. But you see, they've got nothing, and she has found a way in the middle of her affliction and difficulty to love on the people around them as Jesus intended, as this kingdom has, has just broken free. In her mind, it is loose and rampant in Cuba, and she wants to be a part of it. But I gotta tell you, so she's telling us all these stories, and I have, uh, it was actually a woman named Esther, it is uh, Rachel's niece. She was awesome translating. She was like rapid firing me. It's like everything that was being said, she was like whispering to me. She was telling me what was going on. And I'm half in tears. And all of a sudden, there's this moment where it's almost like a digital sound just comes out and it's so clear and so bright, brighter than the conversation going on. And I'm like, what the heck? Does someone have a ringtone? What is that? And I look over and on the wall are these two cages and they have little canaries, little guys, little canaries in them. And one of the canaries in the middle of its cage is singing this, I mean, glorious, glorious sound. And I had to stop there. I'm, I'm on the verge of tears listening to the story, and I just realized, Dunya is the canary. Dunya is singing the song of how her faith, love, and hope has just overwhelmed her into her city. Even though she's full of persecution, she is in a prison of sorts. And it's just like this canary is singing, and Dunya is singing, and I'm overtaken by this whole thought of, this is what it means. This is how this kingdom is supposed to go forth. Does it mean that she's perfect? No, I'm sure she messes up. But she has basically relinquished her life over to Jesus. She knows the power of his sacrifice in her life. So when you look at the end of this, end of this book, you see him rapid-firing these, this, these things off. To me, I'm like, that's who it brought to mind. I'm, I'm thinking of Dunia. So I go back to how we named this series. This is the verse in the very end of the first chapter. It says, for they themselves, this is speaking of the others in Achaia and Macedonia, report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. And I want you to see there are three key things here. But the turning, it's like I am saying no to this kingdom. I am saying yes. I am going to serve. I am going to put all of my faithful work and all of my love over here. And I am waiting for his son. I am hopeful, looking for the day, that day that I'm a part of. That day, I belong to that day. So I saw this. I'm like, okay, so there's, there's this family element to this. I'm waiting for his son, the father's son. There's this idea of being formed by living in this way. When, he, when you serve, you have turned and you are serving. And then there's this idea of the waiting for his son, waiting with pleasure, with joy, hoping for what's going to happen next. 
You are, when you say that Jesus is your king, you are children of the day, and you're waiting for the sun. You are children of the day. But I want to ask you, how do you know someone's children? I mean, how many Smiths are there in the room? There any, do we have anyone with like multiple same last names? I'm sure we do. So you might have kids that actually have the same name. So if I say, hey, Billy Jones, I might get two people answering. So that's not a perfect way. Maybe it's how they look. Thankfully, my kids don't look like me. They look like their mom. That's not fully true. But it's like you can't go by looks and say maybe how they operate, maybe how they act, maybe how they sound like my brother and I. We look totally different, but we sound alike. You could try that. But you know how to actually recognize children and who they belong to? Who do they run to? Who do they run to? that story I'm telling you. I I come home from business trips and I have my family rushing into me to grab a hold of me. My hope is in them. Their hope is in mine. We are in presence together. They have rushed to me. And if it's something good, they rush to me. If it's something bad, they rush to me. Are you rushing in the right direction? Are you rushing to your king? If you call him king, are you rushing to him in prayer, in how you live your life, with everything that you got? So there's this thing, if you really think about it, my whole idea of talking to my daughter and kind of thinking ahead on how I'm going to speak with my daughter and encourage her when she's in college and warn and advise her and, and to draw boundaries and, and to say, hey, honey, when are we going to get together next? When are we going to see you? Can I take you to dinner? I'm hoping she's going to stay close, by the way. Don't listen to that too much if you really want to go far away. There is a desire to be in her presence, and I hope that she would desire to be in mine and her mom's and with her brother. I mean, we are a tight family. But Paul, if you really think about that, think about this book. It's exactly what he's doing. Paul is saying, you guys are doing great. He's encouraging them, and there's this part, a whole section of it in chapter 3 where he's saying, I long to be with you. I long to be there with you, and you know what? I can't be there right now, so I'm sending someone to check in with you, but I will come to you soon. Okay, let's take that and expand it one further. How about God? Think of the Bible. Isn't the Bible the same thing? God is encouraging us to live in a particular way. He's the one who saves us. He warns and advises us. You see it? He draws boundaries, and he gives us the ultimate hope. Do you see it? So in this little microcosm of me and wanting to call my daughter and and Paul writing to the Thessalonians, God has written to all of us in the same way. He longs. If you're here, by the way, and you don't know Jesus, you have not accepted him as your king, he is longing for you to be in his presence. He longs for all of his creation to come back to him. He wants everything reconciled back to him. But at the end of the day, there will be some who just say, you know what? No, I, I, I don't want what you have for me, God. So are you living like children of the day? Are you running to your father? And I I kind of, this is how it ends. 
It's this final prayer. There are three prayers in this whole book, and this is how it ends. And, and it's Paul just putting that last bit of all, of, all that's in him into them. and says, you, uh, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Do you see this? This is hopeful. This is saying, no, I'm, I'm praying that you would be exactly how you'd be sanctified, that you would be living within these boundaries, that you'd be looking to him, hopefully. But it says this. It says, he who calls you is faithful. What you have to realize is even in the book of Thessalonians, you have a place where he says, God, you are loved by God. He tells the Thessalonian church, you're loved by God. And he's saying, he's faithful. So God is faithful. God is loving. What about hope? You think God hopes? It's kind of a weird thing, right? You think about God hoping, you're like, like he's, he's actually kind of outside of time. So how does one hope for something? And, and I'm going I'm to argue with you for a second then. I don't think God hopes but I think he waits for us with expectation, and I'll show you in a second. But I want to ask you, how are you waiting? Are you seeing your faith like the line at the DMV? Are you waiting in expectation? Are you anxious as you wait? Are you living out life in a particular way, actively seeking him? Are you waiting in an afflicted way like the Thessalonian church, or like Dunia. Maybe you're bored waiting. But waiting matters, especially for we who call ourselves Christians. How we wait matters. We wait expectantly, like awaiting our marriage day, like awaiting a child being born. We are looking for that future thing. We know there are many, many, there's much time between, and there may be highs and lows, but I've got that to look forward to, so I live like that now. You're citizens of God's kingdom, so live like it now. So does God hope? Well, I don't think he really hopes. I think that's kind of a weird thing if he's sovereign. But I, will, I found this, and it, like, it just hit me. If, if hope for us is anticipating the good pleasure of something or the joy of something, look at what Jesus writes to his disciples. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. To give you the kingdom. It is his good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. It is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So what I'd pray is that you would wait differently. That you would change how you see hope. It's not a lottery. It's not a lottery ticket. It's not like, oh, I'm going 80 down the road. I, I might not get a, a ticket. No. This is an expectant, anticipatory, joyful, full of pleasure thing that was coming towards us at a million miles an hour. Do you sense that? Do you feel that? Do you live that way? Because I think that's what Paul is calling the Thessalonian church to. And I think this is what Jesus calls us to. So we're going to have our prayer counselors come up, and I'm going to pray for you, but I want you to think carefully, especially, this is Palm Sunday, and we're approaching Easter. How am I waiting? Just
just ask that question, how am I waiting? Am I waiting with this loving, exciting anticipation? Maybe you need to use one of your children as an, as an image of that. Maybe you need to think about, do you, you have a child that's off in a way that you really long to? Maybe, maybe you're waiting, maybe some of you are mourning. Maybe some of you have lost someone and you are waiting with anticipation for the day that you will be reunited with them because they love Jesus too. How are we waiting? Let's pray. Father God, you are so good. You are so glorious. You are, you are our king. It's that simple. And you are a good king, a king to be trusted, a king who wants presence with his children, a king who wants to be with his children today and every day. So, Father, as you call us all back to yourself, as you continue to transform us through your Holy Spirit, as you, you hope that we would come closer and closer to you, as you call us on the phone and say, when are we going to get together next? I pray that we would take that call. I pray that we would submit ourselves to you in your greatness, in your wonder, because there is a day that you've established where your promise of no evil, no death. It's like what Christine was reading uh, before from the end of Revelation. No fear. No cancer. That you have something planned for us that is glorious. And at the same time, I pray that as we see that day, we would see that it is an invitation to live that way now. So as Jesus prayed, we will say, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name.